6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapters 50 through 52. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, the worm shall eat them like wool, but my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation. I was reminded the other evening, I had an old associate of mine that uh, showed up the study, and we went off and had a cup of coffee together afterwards. Last time we were in a business deal together, it was a little tense because... He was doing some things he shouldn't have been doing. Not a bad guy, just getting over his head and did some, made some mistakes. But I could tell he was, we need to get together, and he was sort of wondering if there was some forgiveness, and that was easy. I said, hey, what's amazing, forgiveness, not an issue. What's amazing, as you really put life in perspective, how unimportant those things are. He looked at me kind of surprised, because he was, and it was a neat evening, because we had a neat reconciliation. But... It really is true. It wasn't a question of being forgiving. That was easy. The more important insight was how meaningless all those issues were of the past. It's interesting if we can just stand back and get the divine viewpoint. See, that's what the book of Job is really all about. If the book of Job is about why do the innocent suffer, it never solves the problem because it doesn't deal with that. That's never dealt with, really. What's the book of Job really all about? Maintaining the divine viewpoint. See, we're entitled in Job to an, a conversation up front that Job doesn't have the benefit of between Satan and God. So we see Job as we read it from God's point of view. See, and what the real lesson of the book of Job is, that's the way we need to look at our lives, to recognize there are probably conversations we haven't heard. And it's a question of trust. Somehow, to get our eyes on the Lord and not our problems, or affairs, or setbacks, or tensions. The divine viewpoint. Awake, awake, verse 9. That phrase is going to appear three times here in verse 17 and then the opening of chapter 52. Sort of a marker, sort of a stylistic marker, if nothing else, maybe much more. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Was it not thou who hath cut Rahab and wounded the sea monster or dragon? The word Rahab can mean several things. It is, of course, you will all associate it with the name of a girl in Joshua. But the word Rahab actually means the proud one, and it's also used of Egypt in, in several cases. But here it says, Was it not thou who hast cut Rahab? And I suspect this may be a, an allusion, if you will, to Egypt. And wounded the Leviathan or sea monster. This opens up a whole other can of peas. Who is the Leviathan in the book of Job? Some of the commentators as well as a crocodile. Ain't no way does that fit in my mind. 
I'll let you get the job tapes if you really want to get into it. But you can take a concordance and dig out the allusions to sea monsters, dragons, and leviathans. And especially in Job, you'll find that in a couple of, not always, but in some of the cases, the language goes far beyond a physical creature. And there's something far deeper involved. And that may be the illusion here. But I'll leave that with you as a, a side trip for those that are inclined to spookiness. And we'll move on. Was it not thou who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? That's kind of fun. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I, even I, am he who comforteth you. Who art thou, that thou shouldst be afraid of a man that shall die, and the son of a man who shall be made like grass? There's that illusion of grass again. We talked about that before. And forgettest the Lord, thy Maker, who hath stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and hast feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loosed, and that he should not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. But I am the Lord thy God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared, the Lord of hosts is his name, and I have put my words in thy mouth, and I have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say to Zion, Thou art my people." Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which hast drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she hath brought forth. This has to do with the leaders having fled. This is also mentioned in Jeremiah 43, it's, if you remember that. Neither is there any that taketh her by the hand of all the sons that she hath brought up. These two things are come unto thee. Who shall be sorry for thee? Desolation and destruction and famine and the sword. By whom shall I comfort thee? Thy sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets. And, and like, a, like an antelope in the net, they are full of fury of the Lord, the rebuke of thy God. Therefore, hear now this, thou afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. Thus saith thy Lord, thy God, who pleadeth the cause of his people, Behold, I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again, but I will put it in the hand of those who afflict thee, who have said to thy soul, Bow down, that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body like the ground and like the street to those who went over. Call to Jerusalem. In trouble, but there'll be a time when that will be taken away. Notice the promise that God makes. He's not through with Jerusalem. He's not through with Israel. He's yet to deal with their enemies. Now what he treats us now to is a vision of Jerusalem in the kingdom age. In the kingdom age. Again, we have this interesting marker. Awake, awake. Third time it appears. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth... There shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. 
For thus saith the Lord, ye have sold yourselves for nothing, and ye shall be redeemed without money. Now that's interesting. It's fascinating as you study Leviticus through that the redemptive coin was always silver. Silver Levitically speaks of blood. Even Judas used that expression when he throws the 30 pieces of silver on the temple floor, trying to undo his bargain. He says, I behold, I have betrayed innocent blood. Blood and silver are linked as symbols together. And it's interesting, here we have the redemption coin, but not with money. We're talking not substitute or symbolic blood now in terms of the half-shekel redemptive coin or whatever. We're talking here about the shedding of blood. In the Torah, way, way back, in fact, even way long before Moses, probably in the Garden of Eden, was the institution of the idea that by the shedding of innocent blood would man be covered. When Adam and Eve made their fig leaf things, God replaced those with coats of skins. In that subtle hint, we now understand, was the institution of the Levitical system, teaching them, practically speaking, that it was by innocent blood being shed they would be covered. The Levitical system didn't start with Moses. It was instituted then. In Noah's time, God could speak to Noah of the clean and unclean animals. That's a Levitical distinction. It's interesting. All of this pointing to, prophetically, a cross on a hill in Judea. When Abraham is asked to act out prophecy by offering Isaac, he knew it was prophetic. He named the place, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And 2,000 years later, on that very hill, some Romans erected three crosses. All the universe being judged by the death, burial, and resurrection of that person with whom we have to do. And ye shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Well, now that's kind of interesting. We all know the story of Joseph, right? Brothers sold him into slavery. He goes down there, gets falsely accused, spends some time in prison, but then through God's intervention, rises to become the prime minister of the world. Pharaoh was the king, but his right hand was Joseph because he saw the famines coming. He saw the good years coming, then the famines, and he also gave some good, sound stewardship advice store from the good years to take care of the bad years. And, and uh, so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge and does it very shrewdly. He doesn't give the food away. He sells it for land and lets Pharaoh then own Egypt. Interesting. Changes tax structure that endured to modern times. But then his family moves down there, of course. The 70 bunch come down and they live there. And as time goes on, there's a Pharaoh that rises that knew not Joseph, as the expression goes, right? And they become oppressed. It's interesting how the scripture, again, my main theme is telling you how the Bible ties together. One of the most interesting commentaries on the Old Testament you have in your lap. It's called Acts chapter 7. Young guy by the name of Stephen. But here again, we've got an example of a guy who did his homework. Stephen, a deacon. He waited tables. We had tables for the apostles. Hey, but he did his homework. He knew the Bible. Why? Because he shortly goes up before the Sanhedrin, the highest council in Judaism. And he lets them have it. And if you study Stephen's speech, you learn something very interesting. If you study the speech of Stephen, he, he recounts the whole history of the Old Testament. But if you study his speech carefully, you'll notice what his point is is that Israel always screws up the first time. 
And it's the second time they finally get the message. And he builds up to Jesus Christ. They rejected Jesus Christ. But what he doesn't finish, because he can see the expressions on the Sanhedrin's face, is that they're going to re recognize him the second time. Interesting. It's an interesting speech if you study it carefully. But as you go through this, it is full of discoveries of things about the Old Testament you didn't know by reading the Old Testament. And I won't go through them all, obviously, if you want to get, get the tape on Acts 7. But I want you to notice something here. He talks about, in verse 18... He speaks of Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, right? And then verse 18, till another king arose that knew not Joseph. Now this isn't in Hebrew, this is in Greek in the New Testament. And the Greek does us a favor. In the English we have another, you see. If you have a piece of toast and you ask me, could I have another piece of toast in the English, I don't know whether you mean, do you want it white or wheat? You see. In the Greek, there are two words for another. Alos and heteros. If you had a piece of white toast and you asked me for, could I have another piece of toast, you say alos, then you want another piece of white toast. Are you with me? But if, you, if you've got a piece of white toast and you say, I want a heteros, I want another of a different kind, see? In other words, there's two ways. Another can mean another of the same kind or another that's different. Follow me? We don't do that in the English. The Greeks do. When Stephen says in verse 18, till another king arose, the word is heteros, meaning this king was of a different kind. You say, well, gee, that's a pretty subtle thing. So, yes, but when I go to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 4, there is an interesting discovery in verse 4 of Isaiah 52, which is confirmed, in effect, by Stephen's commentary on this. For thus saith the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. You mean there are pharaohs that were non-Egyptian? That's right. When you study the history of the pharaohs, you discover they were not all Egyptians. In fact, one of our major authorities for the uh, ancient history of Egypt is Manathos the priest. His documents are very well known. And he ascribes the Great Pyramid to a strange group of people called the Hyksos that came, took over the land, tore down the idols, built the pyramid, and then left. Strange, whatever they were. And there's all kinds of scholastic conjectures about all that. The point is, here we have a situation where the pharaoh that knew not Joseph wasn't Egyptian. He was Assyrian. Well, now with that insight, we get a whole different perspective of the Exodus. When we study Pharaoh, we notice he's insecure by the number of the Hebrews. Why was he insecure? Because he wasn't Egyptian in the first place. And with the Hebrews multiplying, they had to subjugate them as slaves for fear, paranoia. Interesting. See, the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. We find out from Isaiah. Interesting how that ties together. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who knew not Joseph, and he said to, unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. 
Come on, let us see. We always assume those Egyptians, maybe not. It's a constituency that's in power. Come now, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when war occurs, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of this land. Therefore, they set over them taskmasters to afflict them. And, and you know the story. Interesting. Interesting. A lot going on there, appears. Anyway, chapter 52, verse 5. Now, therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, what, that my people are taken away for nothing? They that rule over them to wail, saith the Lord, and, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who doth speak. Behold, it is I. You know, it's interesting, as we see God so jealous of his name and we see him recount in Ezekiel and here in Isaiah his displeasure at being blasphemed, right? And he finally gets to the point where enough's enough and he pulls the chain, right? Have you looked around lately? Talk about God being blasphemed. Boy, how long will he endure it? A while, but not much, huh? It's interesting how the book of Joshua is a model of the book of Revelation. You've heard me through this, the idea, whole idea that Yehoshua dispossessed the seven nations. Three had been put down before. There were seven left, seven nations. God took the chosen people to dispossess the land of the usurpers. Battle of Jericho with the seven trumpets, and they kept silence until the seventh day, and then they blew the trumpets. You know, the whole, whole routine is very analogous, of course, to the structure of the book of Revelation. Every rule of the Torah was broken in the Battle of Jericho. The ark was not supposed to go to war. It led the parade, and so on. Before he goes, he sends in two witnesses to get Rahab saved. Interesting, a Gentile. The more you study the book of Joshua, the more you begin to realize it's a model, if you will, of the book of Revelation, with the decimal point moved over, maybe. And uh, the, he finally confronts the kings under alliance, a guy by the name of Adonai Zedek, right? Lord of Righteousness is his title, arrogant title. And... Uh, he gets defeated with signs in the sun and the moon. And then the kings hide in caves and say, rocks fall on us and so forth. Just, just a real model, book of Revelation. What's well, interesting that um, Joshua doesn't go into the promised land until the iniquity of the Amorites is full. Remember that from Genesis? It's interesting that another Yehoshua isn't going to dispossess the planet earth of the usurpers until iniquity is full. Boy, are we getting there. My friend Doug tells me that there are 35,000 new VD cases per day, according to the Atlanta Center for Disease Control. Well, years ago there were seven strains, now there are 18, and on it goes. You look all over the world, you look, at, you look at the world, and you can prattle off many statistics of all kinds and say that, hey, it's a mess. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full, speaking by analogy. But boy, it's getting close. And another Yahushua is going to deal with the widespread blasphemy against God. Therefore my people shall know my name, therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who doth speak Behold, it is I. Verse 6. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of the good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God 
reigneth. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings. It's interesting to notice the use of idioms because in Ephesians chapter 6, we have the armor of God, right? Remember that famous passage? That is also incidentally taken from Isaiah, but it's another one. Turn to Ephesians 6. We, we can sneak in a couple of tangents here. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? But against principalities, powers, so forth, right? And against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore and having your loins girded about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Do you see the idiom tying to 52? Same kind of idea. We always hear this presented in chapter 6 as if, because Paul at the time he's writing was apparently chained to a Roman soldier. And you often get the impression he's drawing these idioms from looking at the armor of this professional soldier. That may be true. However, I suspect he's really taking all of this from Isaiah 59, verse 17. If you pop over to Isaiah 59, we'll just take a quick peek ahead. Isaiah 59, verse 17, Isaiah says, For he put on the righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak, and so on. There is a similarity to Ephesians 6 that I think is provocative. But anyway, getting back to 52, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bringeth good tidings. What are good tidings? The gospel, right? That publishes peace and so forth. Okay, verse 8, thy watchmen, or watchers I may, they may be guardian angels, shall lift up the voice, and the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth unto joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. You know, I read these passages, and I find it very hard to get into this idea that God has forsaken Israel. Boy, if there's any recurring theme throughout the entire Bible, is that God has not forsaken Israel. And yet there are people that try to sell you that the church is now Israel. That's a heresy. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out of the midst of her, be ye clean, that bear the vessels of the Lord. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor by flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel shall be your rear guard. Fabulous, fabulous passage. That ends chapter 52 as far as you and I are concerned. Because I believe verses 13, 14, and 15 are part of what I'll call Isaiah 53. I'm going to regard the chapter break as being three verses late. Because the flow starts at verse 13, Behold my servant! And from that point on, we are going to behold the servant. The Old Testament presents the Messiah in many dimensions, many facets. The Messiah was to be an, a, a kinsman of Adam, a kinsman redeemer, a goel. So he had to be a man. But it also describes him as being a god, the son of God. Some of the rabbis like to deny that today, but in the Psalms and Isaiah all through there, it makes it clear that he is the son of God. He has both human but also of deity. Now, it also describes it to be a ruler and a leader and all those things. Great. But it also describes something that Israel was blinded to, and that is that he was to be killed. Daniel chapter 9 says that the Messiah will be karat, that is executed for a capital crime, but not for himself. 
And the people of the princes shall come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the Roman legions destroyed the city and the sanctuary in 70 A.D. So if you're looking for a Messiah, it was somebody that was killed prior to 70 A.D. And we have, obviously, a very interesting candidate to propose. The presentation of the Messiah of Israel will become so vivid to us in Isaiah 53 that the Ashkenazi Jews tried to remove Isaiah 53 from their book of Isaiah, but the Sephardic Jews did not. And what really is the embarrassment to them is when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1948, one of the great treasures was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And guess what? Right in the middle of it all, sandwiched between what we would call chapter 52 and 54, guess what is 53? It's staring them right in the face. Be prepared next time. Book of Isaiah, presenting the suffering servant, the role of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. There are two roles. The first role is a suffering servant, and we will understand it like we've never understood it after going carefully through Isaiah 53. He will describe it with all the eloquence and all the attention of detail that you could... It's almost a summary of all of Paul's epistles in Isaiah. But the Bible also talks about him coming to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. The Jesus Christ that is going to fulfill that mission is a very different Jesus Christ than most people visualize. We're not talking about the sun-tanned carpenter's son walking along the Sea of Galilee, patting the kids on the head, telling you to turn the other cheek. And Isaiah is also going to present him drenched in the blood of his enemies when he goes to fight for the remnant. We'll have a whole different perspective of what I'll call the Armageddon sequence from Isaiah than you get anywhere else. Boy, the Old Testament. I strongly encourage you to make a commitment to yourself to master the Old Testament. Most Christians learn the New Testament, the Gospels, that's great. Paul's epistles are without peer. There's a lot. Great. But master the Old Testament. It's the whole counsel of God. It starts at Genesis 1 and ends at Revelation 22. It's a package, 66 books written by 40 authors in which every detail, every number, every place name is there by design, supernatural design. You can prove it again and again and again. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.